You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, um, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah begins on page 398 uh, of those black hardcover Bibles. Uh, that Dana mentioned that are under your chair, so you can flip there. As you're flipping there, here's a question that I just want to put before you right at the outset uh, this morning. What makes you weep and pound the table? What makes you weep and pound the table? Uh, This was actually a a memorable and impactful way uh, that a pastor of mine once framed this question about the things that move us deeply. And I get that some of us are, are more emotionally expressive than others in the room. Uh, like there are some of us here in this room that wear that on our sleeves, and there are others of us in this room that are about as animated as the, the chair that we're sitting in right now. But that's not, really what, that's not really what this expression, this question is getting at. Uh, even the least expressive person among us is moved at times has intense visceral reactions to things at times. So as you think about that, what is it for you? What is it that makes you, whether it's literally or metaphorically, weep and pound the table? Our answers to that question will reveal uh, a lot about us, about how we see the world, uh, about where our priorities lie, about what we're willing to reorient our lives for what we're willing to sacrifice and even to suffer for. And that might be for for us in the room, it might be politics, it might be sports, it might be your career, it might be your family or your friends. This morning as we we begin this series in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to encounter Nehemiah. The book begins at this moment in his life where he is weeping and pounding the table. It's a moment that, that we'll see as we trace out the steps of the book throughout the the coming weeks, it's a moment that will dramatically alter the course of his life. But before all of that plays out, before he becomes this great leader, which is what he's largely known for, what this moment reveals is, as one author puts it, that Nehemiah's supreme concern is for the kingdom of God. His supreme concern is for the kingdom of God. Can the same thing be said of you and of me? Or maybe instead, we might be those who have passion and zeal, but untethered to the truth and the promises of God. We might be those who get fired up, who who are stirred and affected by things, but that's actually more about our tastes or our preferences or simply what, what feels right in a given moment. Or there might be some among us who are very anchored and rooted and tethered to the truth of God, but lacking any passion or any zeal. Nothing maybe fires you up or stirs you. When the state of things, the current state of things, contrasted with the kingdom of God, should at times stir us and move us. So are our lives characterized by a supreme concern for God's kingdom? Let's look to the word of God together and ask him, as we do, to form us into people of passion and into people of prayer. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 11. The words of Nehemiah, 
the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who would survive the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Three things uh, for us to see and to contemplate together from this text this morning. The summons to passion and prayer, the posture of passion and prayer, and the source of passion and prayer. The summons, the posture, and the source. So first, the summons to passion and prayer. Uh, Let's set the scene a little bit for these opening verses of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Back in 587 B.C., Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is destroyed by Babylon. And a huge number of the Israelite people from the southern kingdom of Judah are sent into exile in Babylon. About 50 years or so after that, the Persian Empire conquers the Babylonian Empire, and the Persian king, who was a man named Cyrus, begins to let the exiled Israelites return. So some of the Israelites return in that moment, and some do not. Fast forward from that moment about 100 years more to the year 445 B.C. Nehemiah is an Israelite who has lived his whole life under Persian rule. And as we read here, he's in Susa, which is the the winter home of Persian kings. It's the month of Kislev, which is late November, early December. And on what would otherwise be just an ordinary day of no special significance, in walks Hanani and a few other Israelites from Judah. Nehemiah inquires 
about the people of Judah, about the condition of the city of Jerusalem. And we hear Hananiah's reply here. He says, The remnant there is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Two huge things that we will miss if we don't know the context of this. Uh, Number one, Jerusalem is the city of God. It's the place where God dwelt with his people in the temple before that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. So it's a huge deal that the city of Jerusalem lies in ruins. Uh, When any group of people loses their capital city, that's a big deal. But it's something more than that here for the Israelites, for the people of God. Because this is the city that God has chosen. Without Jerusalem, without the temple being rebuilt, there's a fracture of their experience of the presence of God. And number two, from the time that Jerusalem is destroyed, from the t- to, to, until the time that Hanani walks in the room in this moment in Nehemiah 1, 140 years have passed. 140 years. Do you remember the time that Rutherford B. Hayes was president? Neither do I, because it was 140 years ago. That, just to put it in perspective, it's a long time that's passed. Almost 100 years have passed since the exiles were allowed to return, since Cyrus conquered Babylon and let the, the Israelites begin to return. That's a long time for the most important city of God's people to remain in this condition, in ruins. Now, we read in the book of Ezra, who is a contemporary of Nehemiah, that a few years before this, before the events of Nehemiah, there was another effort to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. But it was really short-lived. The enemies of Judah in that province convinced the Persian king, the same Persian king Nehemiah is serving, to shut those efforts down quickly. And that is probably the specific news that Hanani is now bringing to Nehemiah in these opening verses, that that effort failed. But big picture... It means that all of these years later, Jerusalem's walls and gates are still in the same condition that they've been in since Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon destroyed them so many years before. So this is a summons to passion and prayer. This is what that sounds like in Nehemiah's life. It's a moment where God, via Hanani, opens Nehemiah's eyes and his ears and his heart to perceive the horror, to perceive the gravity of the situation. It's not like Nehemiah woke up that morning thinking that he would hear some news that day that would radically alter the course of his life. And every indication that we have as we learn about Nehemiah and what he's been doing is that he was living a pretty nice, comfortable life. As it says in verse 11, he was cupbearer to the king. It's a a position of proximity to power, of access to power. We'll talk more about that when we get get to chapter 2 next week. But for this morning, what might a similar summons to passion and prayer sound like today? What might a similar summons sound like today? Uh, There would be some important differences. It wouldn't be about a particular city or about a particular geopolitical state. The Holy Spirit now dwells in the hearts of those who put their faith in Jesus. So the summons would actually today pertain to the condition of the church In that sense, where have the the figurative walls been broken down? Where have the figurative gates been destroyed by fire? If you and I were to sit together and brainstorm, we could probably come up with a long list or at least a handful of things. But a foundational one, and the only one I'll talk about today, 
is the shift away from God at the center to self at the center. The shift away from God at the center to self at the center. Uh, Research shows that the vast majority of Americans now view self-fulfillment as the highest moral good. The highest moral good. Not the highest experiential, existential, the highest moral good. Now, in the book of Judges, we read there that everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes, and it's a disaster. I mean, it is evil and wicked beyond comparison. We do the same thing, and we now consider it the highest moral good. For far too long, the church has followed the leading of a hyper-individualistic culture and has let self-actualization and self-fulfillment usurp the role that only God is meant to play in our lives. Now, we don't say it that, that way in our everyday language. Like, you probably don't have conversations with other people that, that use that terminology to describe it. What it sounds like in everyday life is more like, you do you. I need to live my truth. I need to do what's best for me. That's normal, is it not, to hear phrases and expressions like that in our day. But in days gone by, and we need to, we need to, to recognize this, in days gone by, only the most narcissistic, sociopathic people in society would have walked around with an attitude like that, so absorbed in self. And when we look inward to self and instead of outward to God as we are meant to, there are all kinds of erosions that start to take place in our lives. One is that the freedom of the gospel erodes into autonomy. The freedom of the gospel erodes into autonomy. So the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that, that sets us free from sin, but it sets us free to follow him. Not to follow our own opinions and sentiments. That's just another more deceptive form of slavery that we impose upon ourselves. Today, to call someone to restraint, to call someone to self-control in almost anything is almost always received as restrictive and oppressive. Related to that, when self was at the center, the, the definition of love erodes to mean blanket affirmation. So if you challenge me, if you disagree with me or tell me something I'm doing wrong, then by definition, according to our cultural standards, you now are not loving me. You are now hating me by telling me that. Underneath all of the the gender and sexuality discussions, which are very important and very complicated conversations, underneath them, though, there is this fundamental important distinction that we need to see between gospel freedom and autonomy, between love and blanket affirmation. And then another erosion that takes place, self-care erodes into self-obsession and selfishness. So self-care is a good thing. And it's good because God values us holistically. We are not just some cog in his cosmic machine. But that same God also says that we should consider others better than ourselves, that we should lay down our lives for others. When we shift God out of the center, when we put ourselves there rather than him, self-care becomes selfishness and self-obsession in a heartbeat. And then rather than asking God to cultivate in us a heart of service and mercy and sacrifice, where we rearrange our lives in ways that cost us greatly in order to serve and bless others, what we'll begin to do is we'll begin to filter everything through this grid of what costs me the least but looks the best. 
what costs me the least but looks the best? What's the most convenient and pragmatic and easy way to live my life that looks good on the outside? We accept as normal things that we were never meant to accept. And church, we are never meant to accept a view of life where, and a view of the world where self is at the center instead of God. So like Nehemiah, when God opens our eyes and opens our ears and opens our hearts to see the horror of that, to see the gravity of that, let that be for us, us for you, a summons to passion and prayer. Weep and pound the table in those moments when your eyes are open to see that. And recognize that for far too long, something has been terribly wrong and then cry out to God to fix it. Second, the posture of passion and prayer. If that's the summons, then second, let's talk about the posture. And Nehemiah's response here shows us the posture of faithful passion and faithful prayer. A few characteristics to observe here in the text. One, it's immediate. It's an immediate response. Verse four, as soon as I heard. Praying um, for these massive issues, for these problems that exist in the church and in the world, uh, is not something that we tend to give priority to. Uh, If we're moved to respond to them at all, we usually try to squeeze that into the margins of our life, wherever we can make it fit. But notice here, Nehemiah stops and he responds immediately. He doesn't put it on the back burner to come back to later. And number two, it's extended. It's not only immediate, it's extended. He weeps and mourns, it says, for days. For days. Think about that. He is in a prominent role in Persia. I'm sure he has plenty to do. This is an interruption to the course of his Life. He hadn't penciled in his calendar three or four days to mourn for the state and condition of the people in the city of God. And his pause to pray here is even more remarkable in light of the rest of the book because as we're going to see, Nehemiah is a doer. Ezra's the priest. Ezra's the one we expect to do this and stop and pray. Nehemiah is a man of swift action. He's a get-it-done guy. And so in light of that, his long pause at the outset to pray really jumps out. He really values it that much. Three, and this really gets into the posture and passion of prayer, do you hear the desperation and dependence in his words? Nehemiah weeps and mourns and he fasts. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that connects our physical need to our spiritual need. So just as our bodies require, they are dependent upon water and food, so our lives, whether we recognize it in any given moment, are dependent upon the grace of God to sustain us. He's desperate and dependent. Passion and prayer are not substitutes for action. They're not substitutes for action. And we know as we observe the world that we live in, the world already has enough slacktivists, as they're called, We've reached super saturation levels of people that like to talk passionately about topics but refuse to put themselves under the weight of real responsibility in their life. As God's people, we are always going to be called to be people of action, to labor at great cost and hardship and suffering. Nehemiah does that. Actually, for centuries, he's been a prominent biblical example of that guy. But, see here in chapter 1, He should also be known as the guy who's convinced how limited he is. 
how hopeless he is apart from the success that only God can grant. Apart from the God of heaven and earth moving the hearts of kings. Apart from God establishing the work of his hands in the hands of his fellow Israelites. Abraham Lincoln once said, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. That I had nowhere else to go. And in that, Abraham Lincoln is only echoing the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? He's only echoing the disciples in John 6. Jesus, to whom shall we go? To who else are we going to go to? We have nowhere else to go. And oh, that we would perceive that and grow in this, individually and together as a church. This room is filled with capable, competent, hardworking people. Which means that this room is also filled with people who will be far too inclined to trust themselves and their own ability to make things happen. And I am the chief of sinners in that regard. To me, it, and maybe this will resonate with you, it often feels like a safer bet and a better use of time to work one more hour than to stop and pray and cry out to God. And so I need the folly of that laid out before me really bluntly over and over again. And that is this, that those of us who are prayerless are not so for lack of time and are not so for lack of discipline, but we are so because we are not desperate enough. Because we, at the end of the day, trust ourselves more than we trust God. The posture of prayer is not only desperation and dependence, it is also, we see here, humble confidence. The particulars of Nehemiah's prayer show us both humility and confidence, and perhaps you heard that as we read it a little while ago. He confesses sin. He owns and repents of his sins and the sins of his own family, but he also owns the sins of the Israelite people. So though he's not a priest, He plays in this moment a priestly role. He intercedes on behalf of God's people. He asks God to hear and to forgive. Now step back and think about this. Is he responsible for the actions of other people? Can he control what the other Israelites have done? Not at all. Most of what he actually is confessing here, how Israel rebelled against God and was conquered and sent into exile as a consequence, happened even before he was born, so he really has no control but he refuses to distance himself because he does not have self at the center of his life rather than moving away to vindicate and exonerate himself as we would be inclined to do in that moment. He moves toward his people in solidarity. He owns their sin too and he confesses it to God. And this is the, the seismic difference between blame and confession. Blame says, look what you've done. How could you? Confession says, look what we've done. Look what I've done. It doesn't allow us to stiff arm other people and remain at a distance. So when you and I are summoned to passion and prayer, will we blame or will we confess? Because you and I are also given a priestly role to play in the world. We read in Revelation 1 that we are a a kingdom of priests to God. We read in 1 Peter 2 that we are a, a royal priesthood. 
So in all of the church's flaws, in all of the ways that Christians do a terrible job of representing Christ in his kingdom, where these figurative walls are broken down and gates have been burned with fire, will we, when we perceive those things, when we're summoned and our eyes are open to see those things, will we arrogantly and pridefully stand at a distance and blame? Or will we put our face on the floor and humbly pray words like the words of verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and statutes and rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. In this humility, hear this, there is also great confidence. Confidence that God will hear and that he will be attentive. Confidence that God will give success and will grant mercy in the sight of the king. So though it is deeply humble and contrite, this is a bold, courageous, and faith-filled prayer from Nehemiah. And that's even more remarkable when we consider that he is a man among subjected, exiled people living hundreds of miles from the city of God and praying in this moment that through him and through a pagan king, God is going to make right what has been wrong for 140 years. What gives him the audacity? What gives him the courage to be zealous and to pray like this? What gives him the courage to move from weeping and mourning to confession to confidence? Well, third and finally, let's talk about the source, the source of passion and prayer. And the only source, the only source of passion and prayer like this is the identity and promises of God. Nehemiah is stirred like this. He prays like this because, put simply, God is God. Verse 5, he is the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And underneath Nehemiah's response here is his remembrance of what so many others seem to have forgotten. That God not only promised that he would, as a consequence, send his unfaithful people into exile, God also promised he would bring them back. Nehemiah remembers that God will keep his covenant, will keep steadfast love with those who love him. We're calling this series, as you see on the front cover of your bulletin, Remembering for Good. And in addition to that being a specific prayer from Nehemiah and the last line of this book of the Bible, this is why we're calling the series that. The only way to live a faithful life, a life where our supreme concern is the kingdom of God, a life of prayer, is to remember the identity and the promises of God. What are God's promises? In short, that God will remember his people. That he will remember us. And that in those moments where as dark as it might seem, as any circumstance or situation might feel, as unfaithful as we or his people might be, he is God, the God who keeps covenant and remains faithful in love. And so therefore, the greatest good for our lives, the greatest good for the life of the world is to remember God because God remembers. Remember God because God is the God who remembers. And we will miss the whole point of Nehemiah if we miss this. We will miss the whole point of Nehemiah. Those of you doing Bible studies together, you'll miss the whole point of the book if you miss this. Though he gives us an incredible example to follow, Nehemiah is not the hero of this story. And his prayer is not a formula for us to be successful in our endeavors, whatever they might be. 
We cannot emulate our way into becoming people of passion in prayer. We can't take the principles of his life and simply will ourselves, exert ourselves into being people of courageous and steadfast and effective action in the world. We can, however, like Nehemiah, throw ourselves in desperation on the promises and identity of God. And we can allow his promises to shape the passions of our lives, to form us into people who pray. Even beyond what Nehemiah knew, the advantage for us is that in the 2,500 years since the events of this book played out, God has only demonstrated more faithfulness and fulfilled more promises. And nowhere is that clearer to you and me than in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. As the author of Hebrews says, because of Jesus, we have better promises. As the Apostle Paul writes, all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus. Think about this. Nehemiah knew, he prayed with confidence because he knew that God would remember his people. But we know it more. We know it more. We know just how far God was willing to go. God will Remember, he will not abandon you. He will not forsake you because Jesus has been forsaken in your place. Don't you see? It's, it's impossible for you and me to be more grieved about the broken walls and the burned gates than God is. We cannot outmourn him. And so when the freedom of the gospel erodes into autonomy and when the definition of love erodes into blanket affirmation and when self-care erodes into self-obsession, it's God's own mourning and grieving over those things that stirs our passion and compels us to intercede and confess in desperation. And as great a mediator and intercessor Nehemiah is for his people in this moment, it's nothing compared to the mediation and the intercession of Jesus at the right hand of God on our behalf. In the same way, just as it's impossible to outmourn God, it's impossible to be more confident than God that these things will be made right. Why? Because he's the one who promised that. He's the one who promised it. We can't out-respond or outwork or out-zeal God. Nehemiah here demonstrates supreme concern for the kingdom of God. But you know what's infinitely greater than that? God's own concern for his kingdom his own concern to fulfill the promises that he's made. And that's the reason that we are not only desperate and humble in our passion, in our prayers, but confident. It's why we ask God to bless the work of our hands and hear our prayers and grant success. And it's why we have the audacity to believe that he will actually answer us when we do that. So may our eyes be opened to see the broken walls and to see the burn gates. May we weep and mourn and fast and pray and be moved to action. In renewed and increased desperation, let us be those who now pray with confidence. And may we move into each other's lives and into our world as people of passion and prayer because, because the great God of heaven and earth, the awesome God of heaven, is the same God who remembers his promises to us. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for the work that you have accomplished and that in you we see the fulfillment of God's promises.
better promises, promises that find their yes and amen in your work. And so we ask this morning that you would summon us in the ways that we need to be more alert and awake, that you would form us in the posture of prayer and passion, this desperation, not trusting ourselves, but trusting you, that you would form us into those who pray with humble confidence, owning and confessing the sin, not only that we specifically and personally bring, but the sins of one another and of our world. And we ask that you would also constantly root us in the source of these things, that we would be people of passion and prayer because of your promises to us, that we would know confidently that you remember your people, that that would stir us to remember you and cry out to you. And we're grateful not only for the truth of this that is in your word revealed to us, but that also in the sacrament of this table, there is a remembrance that happens, that we come and we look back to what Christ has accomplished. We look back to see the one who was forsaken so that you would not abandon or forget or forsake us. So may we come with renewed appreciation for that work, Jesus, that you took that forsaking upon yourself so that we didn't have to. Would you prepare us to come and to be appreciative and grateful for that deeply in our soul? And we pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.